وصحبہی وسلم something before we start. So we left off on number 26 of this work on Futuwa, on a noble character, by Dr. Rajib Senturk. Hafidhahullahu ta'ala wa nafarallahu yahu bi'ulumi fi darin Amin. says, let your friends use your property as if it were their own. Let your friends use, their pro- use your property as if it were their own. Did we touch this one? Did we do this one? Oh, okay. <coughs> one day, students of a madrasa decided to have a small feast during their holiday. They sacrificed a cow, prepared a meal, and invited their sheikh. The sheikh happily accepted their invitation and asked about the source of the meat. One of the students told him they have sacrificed one of his own cows. Hearing this, the sheikh had a happy smile on his face to the surprise of one of his disciples who asked him, Aren't you mad because they have used your possessions without taking your permission? To this, the sheikh answered, On the contrary, I am extremely happy that my disciples consider me so close as to be able to use my possessions without waiting for my permission. Okay. So what it is is that students, they wanted to have a feast. So they took one of the sheikh's cows, killed the cow, invited the sheikh to the feast. And then when he asked them where they got the meat from, they told him, we got, it's actually your cow. (laughs) So he smiled and uh, he was happy. They said, aren't you upset? He said, no, I'm happy that they would be so comfortable essentially to be able to take my own things without asking me. That they know they could do that. Just really nice, mashallah. So he says, sharing is one of the fundamental traits of Futuwa ethics. One of the hallmarks of true friendship is that you make no distinction between your friend and yourself. This also applies to the things you own. A person who does not distinguish between himself and his friends allows his friends to use his belongings as if they were their own, and even takes great pleasure from it. Such an act strengthens friendships and enhances relationships. (coughs) So uh, as we've covered in a lot of different places, Obviously, not every guidance is 100% applicable to every situation with every person in every place, right? But the idea is that ideally, we can find people in our lives that meet the kind of conditions that we would be able to do this with them. And if we 
don't have people like that in our lives, then we should try to figure out how can we do that. You know, maybe it's that there's something that's a problem with me that needs to be adjusted that would help me to be able to do this. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that one could look at that. Or maybe I'm not finding the kind of people that I would trust like that. So then perhaps I need to consider the kinds of places that I spend time in or what kinds of institutions I try to build and what, what kind of people they bring into my life and so on uh, such that I can have stuff like this. Uh, because theoretically it is possible, right? It should, it should be possible to have the kinds of relationships and things that uh, make it so that there's at least a handful of people, one person, two people, three people, in our lives that we can trust like this and that we can know them that well and they can know us that well. We should make the intention to have people like that. Um, this is one of the reasons why when we um, started the Majlis, you know, and people are always like, so what are you trying to do and what is, everyone wants a plan. And what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? How are you going to do this thing? How are you going to do that thing? And so on and so forth. And as much as we believe in all of those things, the essence of the plan is very simple. Is that people should come together and they should learn about core teachings of the religion and they should make a very serious effort to bring them into their lives. And so when we come every single week, I mean this is the way it is for me, I read every single week, I read these things and I think, oh subhanAllah, I need to get this right, I need to fix this thing, I need to improve upon this thing, I need to be better on this. And we make that effort and we make that intention and then uh, we try to do something about it. And as we do that, now we're, then we begin, this is why it's, the mission statement says religious education, spiritual refinement, love and service. So the first point is religious education and we have to be on the same page. And we have to try to do those things that we're trying to do. Because this etiquette in itself, right? Obviously you can't do it if you don't have people who are trustworthy around you, right? But hopefully if you have a community of people who are committed to learning, committed to trying to be better, then if not immediately, then over time you can start to find people, we can start to find people in our lives that are trustworthy in a way that we can have this kind of relationship with them. And that's the most valuable thing actually, subhanAllah. And we shouldn't assume that it's always like the easiest thing to find. Uh, Imam al-Shafi'i radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he used to say something along the lines of if you can find one righteous good brother to have in your life, then make sure you don't leave that person. You know, you found, you found one, you found one person like that who's really trustworthy, who's good, so on and so forth. Make sure you maintain that relationship and don't lose that person, right? So, yeah, it's, this is not necessarily that um, most of us are not going to have an open door policy on our home for everyone. <laughs> it's just not really realistic. But some people do actually. Um, there's a really beautiful story of, I'm trying to remember who it was, maybe it was Malik ibn Dinar radiallahu anh, one of the early righteous people where it was nighttime and someone broke into his house, came into his home, he was praying came into his home, broke into his home to try to rob his house. And he, this person came into the house and he looked around, he saw him praying, 
He didn't leave his salon, first of all. <laughs> you know, he just kept praying. But why did he keep praying? Because this guy looked around, he didn't find anything. <clears throat> he looked around the house, he's like, there's nothing here. <laughs> there's, there's nothing to be robbed in the first place. <laughs> so Maddox wasn't worried. He's like, he's just praying. Cause he's like, okay, what's this guy? You know, what's going to happen? If my life is going to end, it's going to end. If he's going to rob me, there's nothing for him to rob me. So yeah, so he finished his, he finished his salah. And he turned around to the guy and he said salam to him. And the guy responds and he says, uh, you know, obviously you came here to seek something from the dunya. And you didn't find anything. He says, so what do you think if, if you take something from the akhirah? The guy was like, okay. <laughs> He's like, all right, there's the pot of water. That's the only thing in the place. <laughs> Make wudu and come and pray to rakah. So the man actually went. He made, he, he made wudu, he prayed to rakah, he made tawbah, he turned his life around. You know? So if someone doesn't really have anything in their house, then obviously it's easier to have an open door policy. Um, but it might not be able to do that with everyone, you know. As I've mentioned before, uh, one of the things that like traditional architecture would take into consideration are these values, right? Like a person's values would show up in their architecture. It's a really important issue to pay attention to, actually. And I've told you guys before, if you haven't read it, I encourage people to read it. The book called Silent Theology of Islamic Art. I mean the article. Silent Theology of Islamic Art and Architecture. Silent Theology of Islamic Art. It's in the Zaytuna College Academic Journal, Renovacio. It's a really good article. Uh, even in Muslim conferences, by the way, it's really interesting, you see. When you go to Muslim conferences, they're set up different. Right? Like, you, uh, we don't have to get into the details of each one, but like... One conference might set up their room and their space and how they do things in a particular way. The other one might do it in a different way. How they choose to set those things up, they might not even think about it explicitly, but it tells you something about the underlying thought, right? So part of the underlying thought of architecture would have been and would be traditionally that you have a place that can easily accept guests. That's not necessarily part of the rest of the house. It's just easy to come in, easy to come out. You don't have to worry about that, and uh, you can have that. I repeat this over and over and over again in the hopes that maybe one day we'll switch these things around, inshallah. In the hopes that at least if we have a choice, we don't do what's happening. When you go to the Muslim lands, it makes you so sad sometimes now. Uh, at least we saw this in Egypt. I don't know about everywhere else. When you go to Egypt in the new developments, it's like everyone is trying to be Western. So there was a way that the old part of the city was developed and, and handled and stuff, and even then it had its limitations, but like, you don't have to just copy Western stuff. There should be some sort of uh, independent thought and philosophy that goes into it. Inshallah it does. There's this lady who's written really beautifully on, uh, on architecture. She's written for Zaytuna's uh, journal before. Her name is Marwa Sabuni. Marwa Sabuni. If you can find like her writings or her interviews. She's very interesting. She's from Syria originally. She's written some really beautiful things. <coughs> Love the poor and treat them well, 27. Love the poor and treat them well, neither despise the poor nor admire the rich. Abu Huraira reported that the Messenger of Allah said, 
The worst kind of food is that at a wedding feast to which the rich are invited and from which the poor are left out. If anyone rejects an invitation, he has disobeyed Allah and his messenger. So there's two parts of this hadith. Uh, one of them needs less commentary. They both need some, some contextualization maybe. So the first part is that the worst kind of food is the wedding feast where the poor are not invited. Only the rich come. So this is a really interesting uh, hadith. Again, what is your independent culture? Our independent culture would have been when you have a wedding, you invite the whole village, right? As like the old school, the old school, old school way of doing it. As you have a wedding, you invite the whole village, everyone comes. And for many of the poor people in the village, as we've said before, for many of the poor people in the village, that's probably the only time they get to eat meat. It's when they come to the wedding feast, right? So it plays an important social role. Whereas uh, now, like I think it's very common in the Muslim community now to kind of like have these weddings where only particular, I don't know how San Diego is, Orange County, you definitely see this. You see like these weddings where like, they're, they're shocking. <laughs> you know, uh, you're like, subhanAllah, you could have, like someone's life for a year was just spent on this wedding. You know, like you spent $70,000, $80,000 on this wedding. It's, it's like, wow, subhanAllah. I'm not, you know, uh, it's not technically, I don't know actually if it's technically haram or not, but that's not the point. point is that oftentimes in these type of things, there's nobody who's more um, not as well off there. And that's a problem. You don't want weddings like that. On the contrary, if your wedding is like in the masjid, everyone comes. If your wedding is in a community center, if your wedding is whatever else it might be, then other people can come. Anyways, the point is we should be careful about this. We don't want to uh, fall into this like really extreme classism. And the place that we live in doesn't help us. And this is again another point. Like in the old neighborhoods of Cairo, for the most part, everyone, people live very close to each other. Uh, there are some boundaries, but it's not like segregated the way that it is now. Uh, now it's like American cities where you have these new developments and all the rich people live in the new developments and none of the poor people can get there. And it's like very split, you know. Yeah. It shouldn't be like that. We don't want to live like that. And then the second half of it is if anyone rejects an invitation, he has disobeyed Allah and his messenger. So this is regarding the issue of um, responding to the wedding invitation. That, um, you know, it's... Generally, like if we can respond to a wedding invitation, it's good too, if we can go to it. Uh, again, you know, <coughs> there may be some context to this. Like, if you live in Medina, and someone in Medina invites you to a wedding, it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> you know, you live in the town, you walk to the wedding, you eat the food, you go home. It's not like such a thing. Now people invite you to weddings, it takes like two hours to drive there. You spend four hours there, you spend two hours driving back, so that's like a whole day affair. Or maybe you have to fly to a different city, something like that. So don't understand it as like, you know, you're living in San Diego and someone invites you to a wedding in Calgary and you're like going to be sinful if you don't go. I don't think that we should necessarily understand it that way. But I would take it as a general thing that is very important that if we're able to attend the wedding, we should be at the wedding. And, and again, there's a, there's a certain kind of like social element to these things. 
Um, <clears throat> I've heard from some cultures, for example, the two of the places where problems would often kind of like take a step towards getting resolved is at a wedding or at a funeral. Because those are the two places that like, say you have someone that you're not on speaking terms with them, you have problems, whatever. The, the two places they could come and like, it's not going to be an issue. So they come to the wedding, they come to the funeral, and that's like the first step towards reconciliation. You know, so these things are, they're important. Uh, people generally tend to despise the poor and to admire the rich. They despise the poor because they are, most, uh, they are most of the time weak and powerless, and they magnify the rich because they have wealth, property, glory, and fame. It is incompatible with Futua ethics to admire the rich simply because of their wealth and to despise the poor simply because of their poverty, because wealth is not a sign of superiority and poverty is not a sign of inferiority. Uh, we had to be careful, again, um, in the Muslim community, we had to be careful not to fall into the Qarun uh, complex. Qarun complex is what? Qarun has all this money. He says, how, how, how does the verse go? Basically, like I was, I was given this because of some knowledge that I have, Qarun said. Qarun is like, basically, I have all the money that I have because I'm special. <laughs> this is Qarun complex. Uh, yeah, I mean, everyone works, everyone tries to make smart decisions for themselves and their family, everyone's trying to do the best that they can. Some people end up with a lot more than other people. And, uh, and some people work super hard, you know. And they still don't, they're struggling. And it doesn't, just because someone has more doesn't make them better. And just because someone has less doesn't make them better either by the way, uh, but it's a matter of, we look at external, uh, other factors. How is the person's character? How is their relationship with Allah? Are they honorable? Are they noble? Are they loyal? Do they have good character? Do they have this kind of like integrity? Do they have a, uh, just like, how are they, you know? Superiority and inferiority are not matters of wealth and poverty. A wealthy person is valuable only if he thanks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his bounties and shares his wealth with the poor and the needy for the sake of Allah in a halal way. Otherwise, he would have no worth in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what makes the wealthy person valuable is that they're grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that they share their wealth with those who need it in ways that are halal. What does that mean? Anyone? It says in ways that are halal. They're sharing their wealth with those who are in need in ways that are halal. What is this? Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. So that they wouldn't be doing it out of arrogance. Sometimes people give to people who are in need out of arrogance. They, they want to uh, have their name on a building. They want to be this. They want to be that. They want to be recognized at this thing or that thing to have a certain seat at the table, so on and so forth. Even they have this in some of the masajid and stuff. I saw this thing where they started, some masajid will do this thing where if someone donates a certain amount, they give them like a special parking spot. <laughs> I don't like this idea. It doesn't, uh, don't take it as the final word on it, but it just doesn't feel right to me. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like something you should. I understand if you give a parking spot to the imam because the imam has to lead the salat and he has to be able to find the parking spot and 
Uh, and imama has a position, by the way, in, in our tradition that I think is not actually understood correctly. Uh, it's actually very high. I was kind of very angry the other day, actually, in ICSD, and I had to, alhamdulillah, control myself, and I did. But, um, you know, uh, salat doesn't start at the time written on the wall. Everyone should understand this. In, in, in our tradition, salat does not start at the time that's written on the wall. Salat starts when the imam comes and tells the people to make iqamah. That's when the salat starts. Uh, if, if there's, just because like the time changed, and then like, you know, you want to make iqamah? No. You give the shaykh time to come. If it's clear that the shaykh is not there or something like that, you give them a minute or something, or, or there's an understanding. He doesn't come for the salat, whatever else it might be. But if there's a possibility that the imam is coming for that salat, you do not start salat without the imam. Uh, it's so illat adab, man. Astaghfirullah. And it shows like that we have a problem. <laughs> Even, by the way, most of the fiqh positions is you don't even hold a second jama'ah in the masjid. Because there's one jama'ah with the imam, there's no second jama'ah. Some, and then they might make a distinction of like, if it's a kind of, they call it, there's an idea of like masjid as-suq. There's masjid as-suq, which is a masjid where people are passing through all the time. And this one, usually the second jama'ah is permitted. But in the regular masjid, there's no second jama'ah. Like, because why? Because people will have a second jama'ah to undermine the imam. It'll be, so like say you're in, you're in ICSD, some people have an issue with Shaykh Taha or something. They'll bring ten of them, purposely come half an hour late, have their own jama'ah. Or, he's in the masjid, and as soon, they're wa- like literally you're watching them watch the clock. And then as soon as he's, they don't see him, they make the iqamah and they tell their friend to lead salah. Allah help us to deal with things with wisdom. So, uh, not in halal. Another way that would make it not halal, giving wealth to those who are in need, is if a person uh, does men. Men is very bad. Yes. Does it come under? Yeah. It can be a type of fitna. Yeah. This is why they are very serious about it. Uh, it can be a type of like societal discord. You're causing uh, sedition, in a sense. Even, like, there's very clear hierarchy to it. Uh, when it comes to, like, even, like, a janazah prayer, for example. Even before the imam, the local governor, the hakim, has a right to lead the salat. Because the, and the imam is usually appointed by the governor, right? And there's also conditions of, like, the kind of knowledge that the governor is supposed to have. And there's a whole bunch of things. Anyways, point is, there's a, there's a system to it. Uh, but another way that would make this giving to those who are in need not halal is to do men. To do men. Men is when you give to someone and you hold it over them. Mm. Oh, I gave you this, or I gave you that, or I, I did this for you, or didn't I do this for you, and so on. This is men. Men is a very bad thing. How is the verse? Don't erase your charities by doing men and doing other, by harming people and holding it over their head. Don't, don't, it will make, uh, it will make the charity not count at all. SubhanAllah. (coughs) 
is a tough issue. Men is a tough issue. It's one of the challenges of also like not having community funding systems that are one step removed. So like if a community funds something, we've talked about this before, community funds like an endowment. Then the endowment has an administrator. The administrator of the endowment hires the people who work in the endowment. So let's say like a masjid is endowed, right? There's an administrator of the endowment. And the people, of, the people who work in the masjid are hired. And if people want to donate, they can donate towards like the, um, what is that, like the, ca the capital or the, there's a word for that, what is it? Like the standing amount of money. Is it capital? The principal, yeah, they can donate towards that, but they're not donating towards the guy's actual salary technically, right? So it creates one degree of separation that's important. Uh, anyways. Goodness is a virtuous act and it is most virtuous and sincere when it is done to those who are too poor to have the opportunity and possibility to offer something in return. In this case, the person who does a good deed expects his reward only from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, so it's clear. Number 28. I like his terminology on this one. On number 28, he says, Be hasbi, that all your deeds be for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So here he's going to make the distinction between someone who is hasbi and someone who is hisabi. Hasbi and hisabi. So the hasbi person is a person who says, Hasbi Allah wa ni'man wakil. My account is with Allah and he's the best of those who take care of it. A hisabi person is the one who's always counting everything. So one of them turns it over to Allah, they're hasbi. The other one is hisabi, they're always counting about everything. There are two types of people, hasbi and hisabi. Hasbi people, on the one hand, are those who do everything for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, expecting the reward of their deeds from him alone. Hisabi people, on the other hand, are those who take advantage of any opportunity to maximize their well-being, often with no regard for principles. Hisabi people are often referred to as utilitarians or opportunists. The feta, this noble youth, is hasbi. He or she does everything without expecting anything in return. In addition, all their deeds are in accordance with the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the sunnah of his beloved Prophet them, never deviating from it. One should be hasbi and choose his friends from hasbi people. Your relationships, uh, your friendships with hisabi people cannot last long because their only concern is to take advantage of you. Once they stop benefiting from you, they would put an end to the friendship. Permanent friendships can only be established with hasbi people because they would maintain the relationship even if they do not get anything in return from you. Okay, so we kind of, uh, I think this came up last time or the time before. But this idea of we have the relationship, the relationship is for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's not for like some sort of tit and tat. And if there is some sort of, every relationship of course has back and forth. People benefit from each other. Obviously we all benefit from each other. But that is the, the accounting on that is not a dunyawi accounting, it's an akhira accounting, an ukhrawi accounting. Okay. So hasbi, should be hasbi and not hisabi. And seek our friendships from people also who are hasbi and not hisabi. 
sometimes when we get into the realm of our business, of our work, stuff like that, obviously we deal with a lot of hisabi situations. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's life. You have to deal with hisabi situations. It's okay. But the, there's a difference between the things that we choose to do and the things that we have to do. Like there's some relationships, you have to have them. They might be hisabi. I have to have it. Okay, whatever. I'm going to do the best that I can. Have the best character that I can. Fine. Some relate, but then some places I have a choice. Am I going to have this relationship or not? So I want to make sure that it's one that's hasbi. That's 28. 29. Know that what you give for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is what you truly own. Know that what you give is what you truly own. Futuwa is based on giving, but giving can be seen as a loss, especially nowadays. When viewed from a materialist and capitalist perspective, one can hardly see any reason to give away what one has. Then the question arises, why should we give? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our beloved Prophet sallallahu answered this question very well. We give because what we give is what we truly own. We will be held accountable for what we have and consume. But what we give for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be our true possession in the hereafter. This is best illustrated in the following incident that took place between our beloved Prophet and Sayyidah Aisha anha. Okay, so before I do that, one of the things to consider here, like this is a question we can ask ourselves. I'm going to go spend whatever I'm going to spend on whatever it might be, right? Sometimes we, we spend on things that we digest. Sometimes we spend on leisure. Sometimes we spend on necessities. Sometimes we spend on travel. Sometimes we, there's a lot of things you can spend on, right? So the question I have to ask myself is, this spending that I'm doing, is it going to be something that I regret on the Day of Judgment? Yes, it's a harsh question. It's a harsh question. Now, some of these questions are not uh, easy questions. It's a harsh question. Is it something that I'm going to regret on the Day of Judgment? It's actually easier on the other side. The other side is what? Sometimes I want to spend on something. Maybe I have an inclination to spend on something, but I have a little bit of hesitation. And it's something good. And then I have this internal conversation, like, is this something that I'm going to regret on the Day of Judgment? And that can usually actually propel us to do something that's good. Like, okay, maybe someone is going to spend some money on Umrah. Right? It costs money, obviously, to go to Umrah. And they, oh, should I do it? Should I not do it? It's going to affect this. It's going to make this. And then they could sit and ask themselves, this expenditure that I'm going to make on Umrah, when I stand in front of Allah and His Prophet, them, how am I going to feel about it? Inshallah, you're going to feel good. Right? And be like, Alhamdulillah, like, Ya Rasulullah, I spent this money to go see you. Ya Allah, I spent this money to visit your house. Alhamdulillah, I feel good about it. And by the way, this isn't to make it so that we have to become like really Spartan, we don't do anything. It could be like someone spends money to go on a trip to, I don't know where people go on trips to, what's the nice place, like uh, Yosemite. Someone wants to go to Yosemite, they take some time off work, they spend some money to take their family and go to Yosemite. Alhamdulillah, it's not a bad thing. Is it I, just, I just want to be able to answer the question. When I stand in front of Allah, what am I going to say? When I say, Allah, I spent this money because I felt that my family needed a break and we wanted to go out and spend time together 
and I felt that it was part of my responsibility to my children and to my spouse and so on and so forth and I spend this time with them that we have an opportunity to bond and to enjoy one another's company and we went to this place Ya Allah where there's such beautiful nature and we went there uh, you know, to glorify you Ya Allah and to remember you Ya Allah so that we can go to the nature and we can look at the mountains and we can look at the trees and we can breathe the air and we can say thank you to you from the bottom of our hearts this is good intention Alhamdulillah it's totally fine even someone might have something like say maybe let's say someone is married to someone who really likes to like go out and eat they themselves, they might not even care, you know? They don't care to go out and eat. They'd rather like, I don't know, buy some bread and spend the $10 buying someone else a meal. Maybe that's what they'd rather do, you know? But they know that it's gonna make that other person, like their spouse or whatever, happy if they take them out to that meal. And they feel that there's a reason why I need to go to this meal, we need to make this relationship stronger, there's, we need to make sure we preserve our connection and so on and so forth. And we say, the person's justified. They could be justified, stand in front of Allah and say, Allah, this is why I did this. Alhamdulillah, it's fine. The only thing is, just the point is, to, uh, to think about, what am I going to say? You know? Because we know, that when, what are the first questions a person is asked when they stand in front of Allah on the Day of Judgment? First questions. What happened with your salat? Where did you get your money? Where did it go? What happened with your salat? Where did you get your money? Where did it go? What happened to your youth? What did you spend it in? What happened to your life? What did you spend it in? What happened to your time? What did you spend? These are the first questions. So, it's a, it's a serious thing. So, of course, we know that is going to give this narration of the Prophet وسلم, and say to Aisha anha, One day the Prophet وسلم, slaughtered an animal in his house. When he finished cutting it into pieces, he left. Aisha had distributed almost all of the sacrificial meat to the needy except the scapula. When the Prophet ﷺ came back home, he asked Aisha, where is the sacrificed animal? What is left of it? Our mother, Aisha she answered, all of it is gone except the scapula. Thereupon the Prophet ﷺ replied with a very happy expression on his face, in fact, all of it is ours except the scapula. In fact, all of it is ours except the scapula. <coughs> Like, none of it is left except the scapula. He says, actually, all of it is left except the scapula. All of what we gave for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of that is left. What we kept for ourselves, that's gone. That part, we're just going to eat it and consume it and it's going to go away. Right? And alhamdulillahi which is the most beautiful dua, right? It's actually a really beautiful dua. The dua after we use the restroom, sorry. But like, it's a sunnah dua. Very important sunnah dua. Alhamdulillahi Alhamdulillah, the one who took away from me the harm. Wa'afani, and gave me good health. SubhanAllah, isn't it like such a, it's actually such a beautiful dua. Because that's what we put this stuff inside of us, that's what we're trying to get from it. Some sort of health. And whatever is not needed, yeah, Allah help me to get rid of it. Alhamdulillah, Allah, that I had this. And you know, when, when a person has problems with these things, then you realize what a blessing that is. We see it with our children, when the children are, when you have a baby, right, you're always worried about it. Like, did they have a bowel movement today, did they not? You're like counting all your stuff, you're making sure that they're okay, you're, you're like really scouting the whole situation, right? You realize this, subhanAllah, a huge blessing. The only thing that remains is what is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In this dialogue, the Prophet emphasized the importance of giving 
and its value in the sight of Allah. He meant that what we give is what truly belongs to us, as it will be rewarded in the hereafter. This incident has also been the source of the saying, whatever you give with your hand will come back to you. Whatever you give with your hand, it will come back to you. Allah make us uh, generous people. You know, I really feel these two things, they go hand in hand. Generosity and simplicity. If a person, I, I believe that one of the secrets of the Prophet Wasallam's generosity, other than of course that he's the Prophet of Allah and all of this, is that he lived a very simple life and he was totally okay with that. Right? Like, what do I really need actually? I need a little bit of shelter. I need one or two garments. And what I'm going to eat in the morning is like maybe a piece of bread, some tea. What I'm going to eat in the evening is like a little bit of rice and whatever else is there. And I'm good. So it's actually done. Like whatever else I have, <laughs> I don't actually need it at that point, right? So the Prophet and a lot of times we like, we, and uh, subhanAllah, you know, this is one of the things about our culture is that the more things you have, the more things you get dependent on, even if you don't actually have a dependence on them, and then you develop an anxiety about their absence, even though you actually didn't need them in the first place. You know? I've mentioned this before, that we, and you see this when you travel with Americans. You know, when we went to Umrah, you see it. People are worried all the time about everything. And you're like, subhanAllah, like, what, okay, what's really gonna happen right now? Like, you're on a plane, you're going to land. Eventually we're going to find some food. Everyone's going to eat. You might be hungry for a little bit. You might have to go to a bathroom that's like a little bit dirty. You're going to wash afterwards. It's going to be all right, you know. And that's it. Like that, that's pretty much the summary of the whole thing. You know, it's not like, but we're so agitated. Like, well, when is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? Like none of it was necessary even in the first place. So part of how the Prophet is able to give so much is that he lives his everyday life needing so little that it's all like very clear actually. Like, okay, alhamdulillah. So what's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to sit here and have nothing to do? Even that like now is terrifying to people, you know? Like, wait a second, we're just sitting here doing nothing? <laughs> we went to uh, visit one sheikh one time. And there was a brother, he kept asking, subhanAllah, like every hour he's asking. He's like, so what are we going to do next? What do we do now? What do we do now? We're like, Ismail, Sidi, like there's literally nothing to be done. You came to visit the Shaykh, you came to be in the company of good people. That's your day. <laughs> you know, like you woke up and we're just here. Like there's nothing to do. But what are we going to do? There's nothing to do. Like just talk to the guy next to you. Or go pray. Or make the kid. And just sit here, like it's going to be alright, you're going to be fine, you know? But even that, like people get agitated, like, okay, what do I do now? You, you can't just do nothing. It, it's, it's actually okay to just do nothing. Uh, I've said, my, my, uh, my, my aunt, it's my last memory of her before she passed away. And, uh, but it's like the corest memory of her, which is, she would just sit in the window looking. Just nothing. She's already done all her work. These are hard-working people, you know. They work hard. Up at the break of dawn, do everything. 
paint the house, paint the fence, do the vegetables, do whatever needs to get done, do all this stuff, whatever, have your tea, make your food, make the bread from scratch, do everything that needs to get done. And everything's done. So what do you do now? You just sit in the window, stare. Nobody's there. <laughs> you know, there's like 100 people in the town. Nobody's coming. Nobody, nobody's passing. Like, even a car doesn't drive by. It's just looking out the window. Fine as can be. Number 30, forget the good you have done, but never forget the favors done to you and return them with better ones. Forget the good you have done, but never forget the favors done to you and return them with better ones. Can I? Forgot my shawl. There we go. <laughs> Arab training. Can't point your foot somewhere without covering it. But my foot is really asleep right now. Alhamdulillah. Abu Hassan al Madaini narrated that An Hassan radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Hussein and Abdullah bin Jafar felt thirsty and hungry on their way to pilgrimage. Oh man, this is a heavy story. They passed by an old woman. So who is it? An Hassan, An Hussein, and Abdullah bin Jafar. Okay, Abdullah bin Jafar bin Abi Talib. These are all people from the household of the family of the Prophet They passed by an old woman and asked if she had anything to drink. She showed them a small sheep in her tent and gave them permission to milk it and serve themselves with its milk. Then they asked her if she had anything to eat. She said, I don't have anything except this sheep. Please feel free to slaughter it and I will make you some food out of its meat. And they did. After eating and taking some rest, they bid farewell to the old lady and said, We are from Quraysh, and we are headed towards Mecca. If we come back safely to Medina, please come find us, and we will return the favor. When she informed her husband about the visitors and the sheep, he got very angry and said, How dare you slaughter my sheep for people you do not know? You know he's upset. Like This is the only thing we have, is that one sheep. And you, they milked it and they slaughtered it. How do you do this, you know? After a long period of time, the old couple moved to Medina out of financial distress and gained their living by selling sheep there. One day, the old woman was passing by a street when Al-Hasan ibn Ali was sitting in front of his house. He immediately recognized her, but the old woman could not recall him. He sent his servant and asked the old woman to come visit him and asked, O oh, servant of Allah, do you remember me? She said, No. He said, I was your guest on such and such day. She said, Oh, really? Is that you? He said, Yes. And so he ordered to buy her a thousand sheep and to give her a thousand dinar from the money allocated for charity. So they have this money that's sitting there for charity. Like we said before, like one of the things people would do is like they have someone like an Hassan. They trust an Hassan, right? Whether or not he's the Khalifa still at this point, I don't know. But let's just they they trust an Hassan. So if someone wants to give charity, they go to an Hassan, they give it to him. They tell him do whatever you want with it. So he has money for that, okay? Uh, so he gave her a thousand sheep and a thousand dinar. Then he sent her together with his servant to visit his brother and Hussein. He's not done yet. He's like, there were three of us. He tells the servant, go take her now to an Hussein. And Hussein radiallahu says, how much did my brother give you? The old woman said, he gave me a thousand sheep and a thousand dinar. And Hussein also ordered to give her as many sheep and money and sent her to Abdullah bin Jafar. <laughs> it's not done yet. <laughs> Sends it to Abdullah bin Jafar. 
The latter asked her, how much did Al-Hassan and Hussein give you? The old woman said, 2,000 sheep and 2,000 dinars. And similarly, Abdullah bin Jafar ordered to give her 2,000 sheep and 2,000 dinars. And so the old woman went back to her husband with 4,000 sheep and 4,000 dinars. SubhanAllah. While most of our relationships nowadays are based on reciprocity, the people of Futuwa always aim for the higher levels of ihsan in all matters. This includes the acts of doing and receiving favors. When doing a favor, many people may be upset if the other party does not show any appreciation. This should not be the case for the people of Futuwa, for they are the followers of the morality of the prophets. As a matter of fact, as it has been underlined many times in the Qur'an, the prophets declared that they do not expect anything in return for their good deeds. They expected their rewards from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also the problem with uh, this funding model. Similarly, one should expect the reward of his good deeds from Allah only. They should not even expect thanks from the people they do good to. In fact, the ungratefulness of the receiver is even seen as a better situation because it helps you make your deed even more sincere. In addition, not receiving even the slight thanks in return preserves all of your reward to the hereafter. On the other hand, expecting something in return for a good you have done or reminding people of that goodness will nullify the reward that will come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For such expectations indicate that you want the reward from people, not from Allah. This is, mashallah, a very beautiful character, right? However, the people of Futuwa should never forget the favors done to them and should thank the person who did the favor and try to return it in the best way possible. Likewise, if someone has given them a gift, they try to return it with a better gift. Allah forgive us. Thanking those who have helped you is a necessity of giving thanks to Allah. This is abiding by the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, who is narrated as saying, He who does not know how to thank the servants does not know how to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? He who does not know how to thank the servants does not know how to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, you know, I thank all of you for making it out here, you know, whenever you make it out. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the chance to be able to share these beautiful things and these beautiful concepts and stuff. And I wouldn't have the chance in the same way to be reminded of them and to gain the benefit of your sincerity. Uh, one of our teachers in Hadith, he used to read hadith and then he would give his reflections on the, the beneficial points you can take from the hadith. You see this in hadith commentaries. They say, women fawa'id in hadith, kada wa kada wa kada. Sometimes they'll extract like 60 things you can take from the hadith. You're like, wow, subhanAllah, I didn't realize that, that much was there. And some days he would just be, uh, he would come up with a lot of beautiful things, mashallah. And then he would always say that it's, to the students, he would say it's from the sincerity of you guys that you come with sincerity, you come with goodwill, and so on and so forth. And then because of that, then Allah allows us to like have these reflections and to say beneficial things, not because of some knowledge we have, but because of the sincerity that you have. So he used to always say that, Hafizullah. Um, so, you know, we thank you for that. And, and this point reminded of Abu Hanifa, which I've told before. That Imam Abu Hanifa, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he used to, uh, someone gave him a gift one time. And then he returned the gift with a gift that was much more valuable. Of course, Imam Abu Hanifa was a very wealthy person, extremely wealthy, right? Like many, to the extent that many of the Hadith scholars of Kufa were financially supported by him. That the beginning of the year would come, he'd give them a bunch of money, and he'd tell them, I want nothing in return. <laughs> Everyone's clear on it, everyone's clear on it. They go about for the year, they're done. Next year comes, he brings them the money again. I want nothing. 
So Abu Hanifa is a very wealthy, very wealthy person, in addition to his own students. Abu Yusuf, he, he sponsored Abu Yusuf through all of his studies. Um, so, for about 20 years. So Imam Abu Hanifa returned the gift with a gift that was much more valuable. And the man said, yeah, Imam, you know, like I gave you this gift and what you gave me is much more than what I gave you. And he told them, no, actually what you gave me is much more than what I gave you because you remembered me when I wasn't remembering you. So your gift is actually more valuable. Uh, so you know, this is uh, this idea of, uh, I think we talked about that last time, it's like maintaining old relationships, uh, of having like this, this wafat, this wafat, like part of the loyalty that we have to people is to try to remember uh, the good that they've done for us. Not because we're trying to let them hold it over us or something like that, but just out of like appreciation to be thankful for what for that and to be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So alhamdulillah. Uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from us and to forgive us. To give us good in this life and the next. Allah Does anyone have any questions or comments or anything before we close? Yes, Musa. Amen. Um, <laughs> no, 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 alhamdulillah, I just, uh, this is, I'm going to be alright for a few minutes, inshallah. The um, question is, this issue of men, like reminding other people of the good that you've done for them, does that apply for parents too? <laughs> you know, they remind the kid, I did this for you, I did that for you, so on and so forth. Um, if, it's, if it's men, then yeah, you know. Maybe it's a little bit more understandable when it's apparent. I, I get it, you know, obviously. But even as, uh, you know, as, uh, spiritual development is required on all of us, <laughs> parents and children alike. So, you know, it's hard thinking about my own kids, but like, so the conversation, a better conversation would be, uh, you know, like, my son, subhanAllah, you know, like we've worked hard to do all of these things for you. I'm not saying this to hold this over you, but I'm saying this so that we can have like, uh, understand things together and to have an appreciation for this and to try to do better and to try to work harder and so on. So there's like an angle where it's more about a mutual understanding and appreciation and so on and so forth versus men. Men has like a very particular flavor to it. It's, it's very... Um, like uh, it has like a sourness to its flavor you know so if, if we're reminding of, of blessings then we can just try to do that with a different flavor you know? do it with a flavor of like gratitude do it with a flavor of reminding a person that one part of gratitude is responsibility right like how does a person show gratitude they show gratitude by sarf uh, al-ni'ami you know, how does a person have gratitude for their blessings? They have gratitude for their blessings by using them in a way that's pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's the conversation. The conversation is, alhamdulillah, we have these things. Alhamdulillah, we're able to do these things for you. And part of our recognition of that is to fulfill the responsibility of using them properly. Yeah. 
Um, that's different than like, I did this for you, and I did that for you, and you're this, and you're this, and like, you know, it's a different flavor. You can do the same, well, uh, you know, may Allah help us. There's, there's a lot of things, they're, um, they're doing almost the same thing, but the flavor is very different. And when the flavor is different, it's, it's, it really matters. It's not a small thing. And subhanAllah, like even on a parenting level, you know, I want to do what I do for my kids for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's re- you know, the closer the relationship is with the person, the harder it is to parse that, right? Because it becomes very personal. But really, ideally, when I'm dealing with my kid, I'm dealing with my kid, that they're a responsibility from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and whatever I'm doing for them, I'm doing it out of responsibility to Allah, and I want the reward with Allah. And if I act with them in that way and run the possibility of losing the reward, I don't want to do that either, you know? So it's a hard thing to do. But um, Allah help us. Our, our kids are they're, they're, our kids are a trust. Our kids are a trust. They're, but they're not ours. They're our trust. They're not ours. They're Allah's. So I don't think I should say more than that. Allah help us. Yes. That's a good question, mashallah. Did some of you not hear his question? Okay, I have to repeat it. It's a good question. Um, regarding architecture, when the uh, visiting Pakistani noticed the same thing, that a lot of the new developments are very Western and they're not uh, traditional in a sense, and he told the story of Sayyid Hussein Nasr, who he was working on a masjid and there was a dome and there was an earthquake and the dome cracked and then they found this person who was like uh, a traditional architect builder who knew how to build this dome in a way that after he did that um, several earthquakes could happen and it didn't affect the dome you know and there was some sort of knowledge that he had of that that was really beneficial you know and then the question is where are those people uh, who know how to do this kind of architecture and build these communities in this traditional way and so on. Yeah, do they, do they not exist or are they just not in power? Um, yeah, subhanAllah. It's like when we were in, um, when we were in Colombia, uh, it's, it's very tropical, right? So it like rains all the time. And <coughs> certain architectural tendencies are really bad for rain. 
So the brother that we were staying with, for example, like if you go to kind of the older homes and stuff, there is that called the awning, like the part of the roof that hangs over the side. The awning is extra long. Like ours in California is usually what, like half a foot or something, maybe a foot. Theirs would be like two, three feet. So it goes far from the building and off to the side so that because it's raining all the time. If you have your rain all the time and it's always falling at the wall and the root of your building, then you're going to have mold, you're going to have mildew, you're going to have all these issues, right? So the, one of the things they would do is they have these long, so it, it goes farther. And then he said another thing that they would do traditionally is that they wouldn't have straight corners in the building. Because when you have the straight corners, then like the the condensation and the water again kind of like collects in those places, whereas when it's curved, it doesn't happen the same way. And he was saying, but now when they build all these new places, they build them on just like whatever cheapest Western model they can find, and then they build these things, and everyone has these issues. You know, so we were in his, the house that he was renting, and it had like a really short roof thing. And he was like, it's a never-ending disaster. Like we're always fixing the water from the side of the house, and it's getting... So uh, wh where are these people? And... Uh, <laughs> Um, that's a good question. So, um, yeah, is it related to this? Yeah. Also related, I think that there are some kinds of like traditional knowledge and stuff that are probably either died out or slowly dying out because n nobody takes them up. I think there are some that are still there and I think that a part of this is that um, 
when things that are supposed to be art fall into the realm, become completely regulated um, by economic and business concerns, and they lose uh, the craft to them, then I think you start to lose a lot of this knowledge. Um, and you see this even in a lot of things, like you see it in music. You see people who make music, maybe they started off as an artist, maybe they didn't. Some of them started off as artists and then they got into the business of music. And they just figured out the whatever formula that works in order to sell things. And the art form is dead, you know. And I think dawah actually is an art. I think Islamic teaching is an art. I think that's why you usually see, historically you would often see the, the shuyukh were like very um, adamant to the level of independence that they had. Because the artist is like that. Like they have to have a little bit of leeway to experiment with things and to try different things and to be able to have kind of like that creative um, flexibility. So uh, whenever something becomes too controlled, and, uh, then you find, I think you find this, but you'll find it. Like these people that we know in, in um, if you search, for, I think for a lot of these things, when you search and you dig and you dig and you dig, you find them. And may we have hearts that understand these things and pay attention to these things and appreciate these things. And may we work towards, you know, allowing these things to come back so people can see how beautiful they are, really. Uh, like these brothers, again, that we know in... Uh, um, hold on one second. These, um, these brothers that we know in Colombia.